A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing <laughs> works a lot. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I it felt, felt, felt I feel right. I was so and I just happy. thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we're bringing you two stories about epidemics, both viral and drug-related, and the way they can hit home for the people studying them. Our first story this week is from Ken Holler, who was recorded in May 2017 at a show hosted by St. Louis Public Radio as part of the St. Louis Storytelling Festival. The theme of the night was Eclipse. In the summer of 1981, I was beginning my pediatrics residency at Lenox Hill Hospital on Manhattan's Upper East Side. The year before, I had done a rotating internship at Nassau Hospital in Mineola, Long Island, about 10 miles from where I grew up in a town called Hicksville. <laughs> yeah, I know. It had always been my dream, growing up in those post-war tract house suburbs, that someday I would live in New York City, especially after I, 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 I was old enough to be able to buy tickets to the uh, Long Island Railroad and go in by myself and see the skyscrapers and the parks and the museums and the Broadway shows. <sighs> it, wasn't until, uh, it wasn't until that year, though, that it really happened. And what was really best about it was that I was moving in with Bob Corsico, my boyfriend, my partner, my lover. It was the 80s. <laughs> now, funny thing, even though Bob and I met and, and, and became friends and fell in love in Omaha, Nebraska, when we, were both, when we were both students at Creighton University, Bob grew up in Syosset, Long Island, about two miles from where I grew up. It's kind of like we were always meant to be together, like, like kismet. The, so the thing is that uh, um, when we both graduated from our respective programs, we moved east together, uh, and that first year, I lived in hospital uh, apartments in Mineola, and he lived at his parents' house, got a job in the city, and would commute in each day on the train. So finally, after a year, we were going to live the dream and live in New York City. Now, for those of you who may not have been adults in the 1980s, or even on the planet, <laughs> For gay men to move in together in those days was kind of a big deal. I mean, just three years before that, Anita Bryant and her Save Our Children coalition had succeeded in overturning a gay rights ordinance in Miami, Florida by, you know, expounding on, on how horrible homosexuals were with children. And so it wasn't something that you did lightly, especially if one of you was going to be going into a training program to become a doctor who takes care of kids. But love would find a way. Now, Lenox Hill Hospital 
had started out many, many years ago as the German dispensary in 1857 uh, to serve the growing German community in New York's east, uh, east side. And so basically it really was a, uh, a community hospital and it had a very small pediatrics program, only four residents in each of the three years. That meant that each of us spent a little bit of time at other hospitals, larger institutions to get subspecialty training that we just couldn't get at Lenox Hill. Which is why in August of 1981, I found myself at Memorial Sloan Kettering, then as now one of the premier cancer hospitals in the United States, to do my pediatric hematology oncology rotation. I was taking care of kids from all over the world with cancer and leukemia. Memorial was the place where the mysterious cases were sent and for many, including kids, it was sometimes the hospital of last resort. Now each morning our team, the attending physician, the residents, the, the interns like myself and the, uh, uh, the medical students, would go down to the radiology department and go over the x-rays that had been done the day before with the, uh, with the radiologist. We had just finished up when he said, wait a minute, I know you guys are peds, but I want to show you this one film, it's really interesting. That's when he sort of rifled through the x-rays that were on his desk, picked one up and slapped it up on the backlit view box. Take a look at this. What do you think? We all stood in silence as we regarded this strange film. In my head, I started to go through the checklist that I learned as a third-year medical student about how to read a chest x-ray. Okay, the size and soft tissue, it appears to be a thin adult, probably male, since no breast shadows were evident. Good quality film, no rotation, heart size, normal, normal shape, lungs. Something about the lungs. For the most part, they were almost black fields, indicating that the x-rays had gone clear through the mostly air of the lungs to expose the film behind, interrupted at regular intervals by the gentle white arcs of the ribs bordering and encircling the chest. But in the black, where there should be nothing, more white, something, some things, blocking the x-rays, floating in space, and looking like giant cotton balls. Fluffy infiltrates is a term that radiologists sometimes use for, for lesions such as these. I thought I could rattle off a few things that might cause this, but it would help to know more about the patient. I knew my place, so the resident was the one who asked the question. Um, what's the history? 27-year-old, previously healthy white male. And I thought, that makes no sense. This is the sort of thing that's usually seen in a fungal pneumonia in really old people. Yeah, the radiologist said. He's been coughing for a few months. Anyone want to guess what this is? The attending said fungal pneumonia. I thought, cool. Nailed that one. <laughs> nope, the radiologist said, clearly pleased at having stumped a clinician. <laughs> Anyone else want to take a guess? Silence. The radiologist looked over the crowd, and with a sly smile, he said, pneumocystis carinii pneumonia. His audience did not disappoint. This revelation actually brought a gasp from the attending. For myself, I thought, that's impossible. Pneumocystis was thought to be a protozoan and a very rare cause of disease in otherwise healthy human beings. In fact, my only previous experience with it had come the year before when I was doing a, a month of internal medicine at, uh, at Nassau Hospital. And I saw this woman in her late 80s who was diagnosed with it just before her death. For it to be present in someone this young and this healthy was inconceivable. The attending was, was mirroring my thoughts. How do you know that's it? Pulmonary did a biopsy. But shouldn't your next question be, what's a pneumonia doing at Memorial? 
We looked at each other, yeah, it should. Why indeed would an infectious pneumonia be admitted to a cancer hospital? Again, the radiologist scanned the crowd and said, because he was originally referred here for Kaposi's sarcoma. Again, his audience was thunderstruck. Kaposi's sarcoma is a form of skin cancer that often looks like a bluish purple bruise. And in fact, most people think it is a bluish purple bruise until they realize after weeks or sometimes months that it hasn't gone away. That's when they go to the doctor to have it checked out and they get the bad news. But again, it was only seen in very old, sick people whose immune systems were not working. What was going on with this 27-year-old? Yeah, so the guy comes in, they find out he's been coughing, and uh, they get this chest X-ray. He's been losing weight. They find out it's uh, pneumocystis, and they're stumped, so they talk to other docs around town. They find out that he's not the only one with this stuff going on. I mean, like five, six cases like this, pretty much like it, right here in New York. And you know what they all have in common? They're all homosexual. I don't know if I broke into a sweat. I, I, I imagine that my face flushed and I'm pretty sure that my heart started pounding like one of the jackhammers out on York Avenue. I stared at the x-ray for something. What? Wait a minute, the attending said. I think I read something about this in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. These clusters of homosexuals coming down with these weird diseases. Here, San Francisco, Atlanta, this is one of them the radiologist said, as if he were presenting a rare white tiger. Pneumocystis carinii, Kaposi sarcoma, fluffy infiltrates, words I'd heard, things I'd seen, but in the pit of my stomach, I knew I would see them over and over and over again. In hospitals, in clinics, in bars, in friends. Something bad was happening, and, and this guy, this 27-year-old, he could be me. Someday I wondered, would I be him? I don't remember that much more of the conversation that followed as, as people started talking about what they'd heard and hadn't heard, what they knew and didn't know about these clusters of cases. Someone said something about sexual spread, someone else something about uh, uh, a term she'd heard for it called gay lung disease. Someone else made a wisecrack about faggots. I stood silent, staring at patterns of shadow and light. Once I got back to the inpatient floor, I had a lot of sick kids to take care of, and it really didn't give me time to think much about this guy uh, or this, uh, with this, this thing with no name. It wasn't until much later as I finished my work and I was walking slowly the 15 blocks back to my apartment at 2nd Avenue near 80th in the dark, still hot August evening that I, I started to feel the unease of the morning return. I got home late that night. Bob was there. He'd already eaten, as usual. Huh. Long day, huh? I said, yeah. He fixed me a plate, as usual. Yeah, long day, I said, as I looked up at him, almost examining him. That night, I held Bob in bed as we slept, and I listened to his breathing, his strong, healthy breathing, and I wondered about the future. I wanted this moment to last forever. I didn't know then that this 27-year-old guy I would never meet would be one of the first gay men diagnosed with something that would briefly be called GRID for gay-related immune deficiency, and later would become known to the world as acquired immune deficiency syndrome, or AIDS, and that a virus that would be dubbed you know, human immunodeficiency virus had already spread to many 
of my friends and that many of them would die in the coming years. I didn't know then that Bob and I would split up three years later, but that we, we would become very best friends very soon after that, and we would remain best friends until he died at the age of 36. On Thanksgiving weekend, 1994, I didn't know then that Bob would come to me in a dream in 1997, a dream which I know to be a real visitation against all reason and all science because it was briefly interrupted by a phone call which I did not answer, but which I found out later was from Bob's mother who was calling and said she felt compelled to call at that moment just to ask how I was. I did not know then that in that dream, Bob would comfort me tell me that he was at peace, that death was nothing to fear, that he would always be with me and he would always love me. Kismet. I didn't know then that this day would mark the split between before and after in my life and that I would be one of the survivors to tell the story of my people in the time of plague. I didn't know any of this as I held my lover on that sultry, night in August as he slept peacefully in my arms, or earlier that day as I stood frozen in the dark, staring at the chest x-ray of a nameless, doomed 27-year-old gay man. But I did know as I finally fell into a troubled sleep that life as I knew it had changed forever. That was Ken Holler. Ken is a professor of pediatrics at the St. Louis University School of Medicine and Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital. He is president of the Missouri chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics and serves on the boards of the Missouri Foundation for Health and the Gateway Media Literacy Project. He also served as president of the St. Louis Pediatric Society, PROMO, Missouri's statewide LGBT states organization, and GLMA, the National Organization of LGBT Healthcare Professionals. In addition to this, he is also the newest member of Story Collider's nonprofit board. And he is also an accomplished actor, produced playwright, and acclaimed cabaret performer. In 2015, he was named Best St. Louis Cabaret Performer by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. This week's podcast is brought to you by Virtue Labs, a new hair care brand with the vision to give everyone the best hair scientifically possible. Six years ago, a group of bioscientists working in restorative medicine discovered an incredible new protein called alpha-keratin-60-KU. Alpha-keratin-60-KU is a whole human protein that's identical to the keratin in your own hair, so it can resurface and fill in cracks from damage to change your hair's quality and appearance forever. Right now, you can only find it in Virtue Lab's line of shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Not to mention, each formula was created to address specific issues like heat damage, frizz, or thinning hair. That means more bounce, more shine, more strength, and more life for your hair. If you're ready to experience it, you can try it now at 10% off and get free shipping with the code COLLIDER. Visit VirtueLabs.com to place your order. It's time to start treating our hair with a little more humanity. It's time for Virtue. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Maureen Boyle. It was recorded in March 2017 at Busboys and Poets 5th and K in Washington, D.C. The theme of that night was Outsiders. 
The first time I smoked weed was with my older sister. <laughs> when we were young, I was in awe of her. She was gorgeous. She was smart and insightful. She wasn't just popular, she was a leader of the popular girls. And she knew, always knew how to get exactly what she wanted. We used to go to this little store around the corner from our house, and with just a look, she could get the guys behind the counter to give her free candy or soda. And she was always the fun and impulsive one. The first time my parents caught her getting drunk, she was only 13. And by that time, more than a few of the bottles in our liquor cabinet had been topped off with water or iced tea. She started staying out all night, partying with her friends. But that fun and impulsive side was only part of the picture. She started going through bouts of mania and depression. She started starving herself to stay thin. She was in and out of the mental health institutions, gathering up different diagnoses from bipolar disorder, OCD, panic disorder, anorexia, PTSD. In college, she started dating a pharmacist, and he basically gave her unlimited access to pills. I would go over to their apartment, and there would be Costco-sized bottles of Vicodin, Percocet, Xanax, just sitting out on their shelves. And for her, that eventually transitioned into heroin and crack. And that's when all the behaviors that you associate with addiction began. The lying, the stealing, the only showing up when she needed or wanted something. There was one time she called my brother in the middle of the night, begging for $200 to get her carpets cleaned. She went from this incredibly smart person to someone who couldn't think of a better lie than a carpet emergency. Our relationship took a lot of twists and turns over the years. At times, she could be the most thoughtful, empathetic person you know. She knows how to comfort you when you're in pain. She knows what to say to reassure you, to make you feel like you're loved, because she knows what it's like to feel like you aren't. But at other times, she could show a selfishness and an unconcern that was totally incompatible with the other side. She used to smoke cigarettes incessantly, but my mom had bad asthma. She'd be upstairs in her room, smoking out the window, while our mother struggled to breathe downstairs. And she knew what she was doing. She knew that she was hurting our mom, and she wouldn't just go outside. And for a long time, I couldn't forgive her for it. But as I got older, and I understood her mental health problems better, and the pain that she was in, we got close again. We were even roommates for a time in college. But she was at the height of her anorexia. She was five foot five and got down to about 85 pounds. I'd come home and she'd recite for me the meager amount of food that she'd allowed herself to eat. The slices of cucumber, the steamed green beans. Then she'd show me how her size zero jeans were starting to get baggy on her. And in the next sentence, she'd ask if she was fat. Every conversation centered around it. It felt like she needed constant reassurance. Reassurance that I loved her. Reassurance that she was thin. Reassurance that life was worth living. But no amount of it ever seemed to make a dent. There was one time when I was cooking dinner and I realized that one of the good knives was missing. And I asked her about it. And she said that she had started sleeping with it in her bed in the hopes that she would wake up with the strength to do it. I was 18. 
I had no idea how to handle this. I was convinced I was going to wake up one morning to find her body, or that I'd get a phone call at work telling me she was dead. I wish I could say that I was strong when she was needed me the most, but I wasn't. I started avoiding being home. I would leave first thing in the morning and come back just in time to go to bed. And all this time, all I wanted was to save her. I was convinced that if I could just come up with the right words, if I could just frame the right argument, she would understand that life wasn't as bad or as hard as she thought it was. If I could just find the words that would resonate with her, she would stop hurting herself and she would get better. But I never found those words. And I was still her nerdy little sister. And I went off to grad school to study the neurobiology of mental illness. I was fascinated by how this mass of cells within our skulls could produce these sentient, introspective beings with such complicated and often inscrutable emotions and behaviors. One day in my first year, I was in the lab, mid-experiment, pipette in hand, and my phone rang. I glanced over and saw that it was my mom. My heart dropped. My mom doesn't call, ever. She emails. So I ripped off my gloves, grabbed my phone, ran into the hallway. I was shaking by the time I answered. And then she tells me that she's redoing her will. She wants to send me some papers for me to sign. She heard the tears in my voice as soon as I replied. And she knew exactly what I'd been thinking because it was what we were all thinking, all the time. She didn't call again without emailing first. A few years ago, I moved away from the lab bench and uh, into policy, where I'm still working on mental health and addiction issues. And just about every day, I tell people how addiction is a brain disorder, how drugs flood the reward circuit with dopamine, and this is the same circuit that reinforces natural rewards, food, sex, love. But drugs activate it much more powerfully. And the brain, it likes to maintain a level of balance. And so when you repeatedly hyperactivate that circuit, it compensates to turn the volume down. But what that means is when you stop taking the drug, it's still on low. And so you don't experience the same level of pleasure from the natural rewards. And similar things are happening to different circuits throughout the brain that are affected by drugs. Circuits that control your stress response, pain, learning and memory, impulse control, decision making. And some of these are primal circuits. And so someone with an addiction basically learns incorrectly, but powerfully, that their survival depends on those drugs. So put yourself into the brain of someone with an opioid addiction. You want to stop, but as soon as you do, you start to experience withdrawal. You're nauseous, you're shaking and sweating, your head hurts, your body hurts, your joints, your bones. You have vomiting, diarrhea. It feels like the worst flu you've ever had. Your stress response is out of control, and you know that the only thing that's going to make it better is if you just take that drug.
Imagine at the same time that you're the circuits that help you prioritize your long-range decisions, your long-range goals are diminished. Can you maintain your recovery? What if you also have PTSD or bipolar disorder? What if you're living in poverty? And even if you do stop using drugs, you don't see a real realistic way to rebuild your life. On your worst days, when you're stressed, exhausted, overworked, do you always live up to the goals that you set for yourself? To eat right, to exercise, to walk your puppy? Do your better instincts win day after day, week after week, month after month? When I think about my sister through this lens, I have incredible sympathy for her. But the reality, when I'm face to face with her, is so much harder than this. She lies. She doesn't take responsibility for her actions. She doesn't contribute to society. All that the science tells us doesn't tell us how to actually have a relationship with someone in the throes of an addiction. When she lies, should I pretend that I believe her? Should I call her out on it, knowing it's just gonna start a big fight? Should I ignore it and move on? How can you have a relationship without trust, without reciprocity? Family relationships are always complicated. And if my sister were here today, she would tell you that I'm not supportive enough. She blames me and the rest of my family for her illnesses. She thinks that if we could just trust her more, if we could just support her unconditionally, she could get better. But I don't know how to pretend to trust. I don't know how to pretend I don't see the lies. A good friend of mine in recovery from addiction once told me that the best thing that family members can do is to distance with love, to show empathy and compassion without supporting the behavior. But anyone who's ever done this knows how incredibly difficult it is. And every single member of our family has a different definition for what it means. I wish I had good answers to these questions. I wish I had something to tell the family members that came to me how to rebuild their families. But in life, just like with science, we often don't get complete answers to the big questions. We keep asking and looking and finding small pieces to the puzzle. And that's what I try to do. As I was writing this story, it brought me right back to that place of believing maybe I could find the right words. Maybe I could find words that would resonate with my sister, words that would save her. Hopelessness has been a refuge for me for a really long time. And even just the sliver of hope that I don't really even believe in opened up this depth of pain that I'm usually really good at pretending isn't there. I don't know if I'll ever have a normal relationship with my sister, but I hope that she knows that even though I hold myself at a distance, I do it with love and with the hope that one day we can have the kind of relationship where we accept each other despite our flaws without having to pretend they're not there. Thank you.
That was Maureen Boyle. Maureen is the chief of the science policy branch at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, or NIDA. She is a neuroscientist who has spent the last seven years working on behavioral health care reform and drug policy. She was also a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellow at the NIH Office of Behavioral and Social Sciences Research. When she wants to get out of her brain, she runs, does yoga, and tries to apply Pavlov's lessons to her bulldog puppy. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 or more a month, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, Simon's Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Paula Croxon, Shane Hanlon, Miriam Zeringhalem, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Audrey Kearns, Eli Chen, Zach Stovall, Kelly Vinal, Mesa Salita, and Emma Yarborough, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the St. Louis Storytelling Festival and St. Louis Public Radio, as well as Busboys and Poets for hosting these shows and all those fighting epidemics across the world. Thanks for listening. This week's podcast is brought to you by Virtue Labs, a hair care brand with a vision to give everyone the best hair with the help of an incredible new protein called Alpha Keratin 60KU. Alpha Keratin 60KU is a whole human protein that's identical to the keratin in your own hair that can fill in cracks from damage and give your hair more bounce, shine, and strength. Try it exclusively in Virtulabs shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Go to virtualabs.com and use the code COLLIDER for 10% off and free shipping. A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing <laughs> works a lot. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now.